Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 21. I'll give you a minute to meet me in Ephesians chapter 5. The text reads like this. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at, one, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Cause your word to come alive in me and in us. Give us faith for what we cannot see. Holy Spirit, we look to you for these things and we ask them of you for the glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. I see three oranges and I have to juggle. I see two towers and I have to walk. Those were the words of Philippe Petit who at 25 walked a tightrope between the two world trade centers in New York City. He was 1,350 feet above street level, 
And he completed the walk four times. At one point, he just sat down. At another point, he laid down the diameter of this tightrope being one inch wide. Don't ask me how he did it. All I know is he walked carefully. He walked carefully. The point of our passage this morning from Ephesians 5 is walk carefully. And since chapter 4 verse 1, Paul has been urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. And our passage today really works as like a summary passage, summarizing the past five passages for us. And since this is the last time that Paul uses the language of our walk as believers, I want to remind us as to why Paul was so bothered about our walk and about our conduct as Christians in the first place. I really do believe that the mistake that that some of us can make as we, we come to these parts of Paul's epistles where there's just one imperative command after another, we can, we can read them as though Paul is a stressed out head teacher who's telling off naughty kids. But friends, no. The reason Paul was so keen to instruct Christians was because he loved them. He loved the people that he was writing to and he wanted them, he wanted us to thrive in Christ, not wilt on the vine. And when you stand back and you you look at the entire corpus of Paul's epistles, you, you come away with the inescapable fact That Paul's pastoral heart was the largest heart in the world at the time. He loved the churches that he was writing to. You think for a moment about what he said to the Corinthian church. Yes, the Corinthian church. A nightmare of a church in some ways. He said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, listen to this, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And what he said to the the Thessalonian church, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And who could forget what Paul said about the Jews in Romans chapter 9? He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So listen, church, as we come now to the last of these passages that deal specifically with our walk as believers, don't shy away, but instead draw near, 
receive what Paul has to say, believing that the one who's writing to us is for us, not against us. Who is on our side, not on the side of the opposition. Who wants what is best for us, not what is worst for us. And I know myself that I would say anything, I would communicate anything, I would write anything for the good of my girls. And in the same way, Paul says what he has to say in order for the church of the living God to thrive and flourish as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a passage for us to shirk or reject or walk away. It is one for us to receive from a shepherd of our souls. And so again, his point to us today is walk carefully. And the question is, how are we to do that? Well, Paul says first, be wise. Be wise. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul writes there, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now you can hear in those words an echo of what Paul has been saying of late because Paul has been reminding us of who we are in Christ and then showing us how our, how our identity can come to light in our piety. And here Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, God has made you wise. That is part of who you are. We used to be foolish. Remember what Paul wrote in Titus 3? He said, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. He said elsewhere, Claiming to be wise, we became fools. And he said, but, but then we learned Christ. As Paul has told us in Ephesians, God opened our minds to enable us to see what sin really is and who God really is and who Christ really is as Savior. God made us wise supernaturally. But the focus here isn't so much on our identity as those who are wise. The focus here is on what it looks like for us to be wise and why, that should, and why we should bother in the first place. So what does it look like then for us to walk as those who are wise? Look at verse 16 again. Making the best use of the time. That is what it looks like for us to walk in wisdom. Taking every opportunity, making the most of every chance we get to advance the cause of Christ. Why? End of verse 16. Because the days are evil. In other words, the present age is no time for laxity, but strategy. No time for lethargy, but urgency. We are at war. No, not with unbelievers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're at war instead 
with the spiritual rulers and the spiritual authorities and the spiritual cosmic powers over this present darkness because of them, because of their influence in the world, we do live in an antichrist world. And we are steeped in an antichrist culture and we do breathe an antichrist air. And therefore, we are to have a wartime mentality that seeks to make the most of every chance we get to advance the cause of Jesus Christ in the world. We are not to partition our lives, the spiritual over here and the practical over here. We're Christians on Sunday. We're whatever else on a Sunday. Instead of partitioning our lives, we are to position our lives to the, for the advance of the kingdom of God even behind these enemy lines. That is what it looks like for us to be wise as believers of Jesus Christ. Just cast your eyes with me for a minute, 2,000 years, uh, 2,000 miles rather, to the east. And think about those heroic men in Ukraine who kissed their wives and children goodbye as they left on a train and chose to stay in a country that was being blown to smithereens. Why do they need to be wise? Why do they need to make the most of the time? Well, the demolished hospitals and the blown up cars and the toppled houses give you the answer. Because the days are evil. There is evil to overcome. There is a dictator to topple. Or cast your eyes 2,000 miles south of Ukraine to Israel. Why does the Israeli army need to be wise? And why does the Israeli government need to make the most of the time? Because the days are evil. Because there is evil for them to overcome. Or look back behind your shoulder 80 years in the past. You think back to the Second World War when meat and cheese and eggs and, and sugar and clothes had to be rationed, and when baths could only be yay high. What was the point in all of that? The days were evil. And therefore there was a corresponding strategy to employ in order to make and to take the most make the most of every opportunity to push the forces of evil back. And friends, yes, the day is fast approaching when God will crush the head of the devil underneath our feet. But until then, says Paul, be wise. Make the most, make the best use of our time. So tomorrow morning, for example, your colleague is going to say, how was your weekend? And you could say, yeah, it was all right, thanks. How was yours? Or you could say, That was all right. Church was really challenging, right? Because we were thinking about dot, 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 and and you're in. Or you can think about that colleague who said to you, yeah, yeah, I can never believe in God. I I can never be a Christian because Christianity is is anti-science. It's anti-gay. It's Uh, anti-pluralism. It's anti-goodness. You think of all the evil and suffering in the world, and you could just throw up your hands and say, yeah, well, I, I tried. Or you could take 10 minutes to Google the best book in answer to that objection, buy it for them, 
hand it to them and say, hey, let's, let's walk through it together on our lunch breaks on Tuesday afternoons. You could just roll out of bed next Sunday morning and you could just show up at church. Or you could read ahead to the passage we we're going to be looking at next week, God willing. And you could spend 30 seconds thinking to yourself, who would that be perfect for? And you could invite them to church the next week and the next Sunday. We're to be wise. Innocent as doves. Wise as serpents. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Satan doesn't take a day off. Walk carefully, Paul says. Number one, be wise. Number two, be informed. Be informed. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be informed. If we're going to walk carefully in these evil days, then we've got to understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to lean not on our own understanding, that would be foolish. But instead of all, in all our ways, we are to acknowledge him. And in all of our days, we're to pray, Lord, your will be done. Now, you may or may not know that when it comes to uh, knowing what the will of the Lord is, uh, sometimes us believers can be weird and, uh, frankly, a bunch of nutters. Uh, Hannah Whittle-Smith, she was a, a Quaker uh, back in the 1800s, and she actually uh, catalogued uh, a, a collection of all of the most bizarre examples she could find of people telling her uh, what God's will had been revealed to her. And so uh, we read uh, about a woman who would wake up in the morning, she would consecrate her day to the Lord, and then she would pray whether God wants her to get out of bed or not. Uh, listen to this, quote, she wouldn't stir till, quote, the voice told her to dress. As she put on each article, she asked the Lord whether she was to put it on, and very often the Lord would tell her to put on the right shoe and leave off the other. Uh, sometimes she was to put on both socks and no shoes, and sometimes both shoes and no socks. It was the same with all the articles of dress, and we laugh at that. Maybe we should. But if someone were to ask you today, how can I know the will of God for my life? I wonder what you would say. Well, there is a helpful distinction between God's general will and God's revealed will. And so God's general will refers to what God has revealed for believers in all times and in all places, regardless of the context. You think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, that you grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. So immediately, straight away, the guy who says to you, God is calling me to leave my wife for this other woman who just so happens to be younger and hotter is deceived. Paul says elsewhere, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the grumbler, the complainer, the moaner is out of the will of God. Or, or you think of what it says in Micah 6 verse 8, he, God, has told you Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice 
and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's the will of God for you. But then the particular will of God is what we seek when there are several valid but divergent paths opened before us. This university or that university, this home or that home, this city or that city, this job or that job, that name for my child or this name for my child. And in those times, seeking the Lord for his will and understanding is a good and a glorious thing. And do just let me say, if you're here today and you feel like you're at a crossroad in your life, where there's about seven or eight divergent paths ahead of you, I want to encourage you with this. God either has revealed or will reveal what his will for you is. That's wonderful, isn't it? You think about that, that that God's will, it's not something that is being intentionally hidden for you. It's not like a treasure in the center of one of those hedge mazes that are designed to be as hard as humanly possible. Instead, God has either revealed or God will reveal what his will for your life is. And practically, I just want to say to that one among us now, the more that you familiarize yourself with God's general revealed will in the Bible, the more wisdom you'll have in those times when there are divergent paths ahead of you and when you're in need of a a particular sense of guidance in your life. The more you understand what God has revealed, the more you'll understand what God is hiding for the time being. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, God has revealed his will for you. Because the Bible says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, if nothing in this sermon has made sense to you at all up until this moment, please understand this. God's will for you and God's will for your life is that you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's will is that you would acknowledge the reality and the horror of your sin, that God made you for relationship, but you have turned your back on God, and you have suppressed his truth in unrighteousness, and you have not loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, you have loved yourself. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting eternal life. And he gave his son to live the life that we could not live, that life without sin, and to die the death that we should have died, the death for sin on that bloody cross of Calvary. And he rose on the third day in victory over all of God's and all of your enemies. And today Jesus is alive and well. And he is seated on a throne. And he is ruling over all times and over all seasons and over all towns and cities and tribes and tongues. And he is calling all men and all women to repent of everything and to receive the life that only he can give as the one who came from God and leads us back to God. Repent on Christ and believe on him today. Be wise, 
Paul says, be informed. And then last of all, be filled. Be filled. Look at verse 18. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. To walk carefully, we need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. It's very interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't tell us what that means. I'd have been grateful for that this uh, past week, Paul. What does that mean? But it's very, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul commends being filled with the Spirit as an alternative to drunkenness. And when you consider drunkenness, you get an idea as to what Paul does mean when he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. What happens to a person when he or she is drunk? Well, everything about him or her is affected. So his uh, perception of reality, his behaviors, everything else, his, his actions, his reactions is affected. And it's interesting that even medically speaking, drunkenness, alcohol, depresses the part of the brain that enables you to have things like self-control and a, a sound perception of reality. And that's why when a person is drunk, his or her desires get the upper hand on sense and his mind. But when a believer is, is influenced by the Holy Spirit, it is the total and complete opposite. So, someone said this, if excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a, a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human. He makes us like Christ. And therefore what I believe Paul is saying to us today, church, is this. Be under the complete influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That instead of grieving him, instead of offending him, instead of uh, resisting him, surrender to him. And make all of his priorities your priority. Make his loves your love. Make his concerns your concern. And that even though, yes, we have received the Spirit, yes, we have, we're being, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, to walk carefully, we are to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, uh, was once asked, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? And he said, yes, but I leak. And so do you. And so do I. So how do we do this? It's really interesting that uh, in the parallel passage to this passage here uh, in Ephesians, the parallel in the book of Colossians, at this very point in, in the, the verse, Paul says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he would write that, wouldn't he? Because the word of Christ is spirit and life. And the words of God were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that when we top ourselves up with the word of God, what happens to us? Well, God's priorities become our priority. And God's concerns become our concerns. And God's loves become our loves. And then in verses 19 to 21 here in Ephesians 5, Paul shows us what it looks like when we as a church are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So we've asked, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, Paul is more concerned that we understand what it looks like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He tells us that a Spirit-filled church is identified by its addressing. Addressing, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That in the life of a Holy Spirit-filled church, there is both a horizontal as well as a vertical aspect to our worship as a people. Whatever your preference is, Uh, when it comes to worship style, uh, whatever your personal preference is when it comes to the number of instruments in, in worship, the point is the congregation has to be the loudest instrument in the room. Why? Because we're called to address one another. And whereas instruments carry notes, voices carry truth. It's amazing, one of our members was actually converted listening to a congregation sing in Christ alone. And the Holy Spirit applied those words to her life and she was born again. And the Holy Spirit today takes psalms and hymns and spiritual songs just like that one and strengthens the church as we seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that when you arrive at church, feeling guilty and feeling like a loser. You need to hear your church family sing to you, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, in you. And when you arrive at church and maybe you feel triumphant, you feel like a legend of a Christian, you feel a bit like a a bit of a champion. You, you need your church family to sing to you, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And when you arrive at church and you feel a little bit afraid, and you're anxious because you need God's particular will revealed in your life, you need your brothers, you need your sisters to sing to you. That wonderful hymn, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And so a spirit-filled church is identified by its addressing. But then it's also identified by its singing, this time not to one another but to the Lord. This is the, the vertical aspect of our corporate singing uh, as a church. Verse 19, end of verse 19 again. Singing and making melody to the Lord with, you, with your heart. Some of you struggle uh, with the fact that our songs are too uh, old. Some of you struggle with the fact that our songs are too new. But maybe the evidence that you're spirit-filled is the way you're able to put those frustrations to one side and sing and make melody to the Lord in your heart. Friend, bitterness is not the evidence of spiritual fullness. It is the evidence of spiritual emptiness. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this addressing, there's a singing, and then there's a thanking. 
as a church, that if there's gifting on display as a church, if there's any grace experienced, if there's any positivity in the church, we're not to be boastful, we're not to be haughty, we're not to look down our noses on other churches that might not have those same strengths. Instead, we're just to be thankful. And even if there is uh, gaping holes in the church, and there are needs that year after year are not being met and are not being filled, we can still be thankful knowing that the Lord has sustained us despite the needs, not because of the way that those needs are being met. And then a spirit-filled church is a submitting church, specifically as we're going to see in the weeks to come. Uh, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands sacrificially dying and laying their lives down for their wives, children submitting to their parents, and then servants or employees submitting to their masters or employers. Now, church, given all of this, as I seek to bring this to a, a close now, let me say this. If these are the marks of a spirit-filled church, then I believe we have reason to be encouraged. Because as I stand there on the front row on a Sunday morning, a bit worried about who's not here, worrying about 10,000 different things in the life of the church and in your lives of individuals, it sounds to me like we are addressing one another with psalms and uh, songs and spiritual songs with a great sense of holy zeal. And it sounds to me, I can't know your hearts, but it sounds to me as though we are singing and making melodies to the Lord in our hearts with love to Him. That's the way it sounds to me. And And it does look to me as though we are a thankful church, our prayer meetings on Tuesday and our prayer meetings on, on Friday morning, they're, they're permeated with a sense of thankfulness. Have you noticed how the vast majority of our prayers, they start, Father, thank you. And then we move on to the supplication. And on the whole, there is a sense of, of, of holy and appropriate submission uh, in the life of the church. But to bring this sermon full circle, Let me say this, if the days are evil, we cannot be content as to where we are. Friends, we've got to press on. We've got to press on in all of these marks of being spirit-filled. You see, Hoylake doesn't realize it, but that is Hoylake's greatest need. A Holy Spirit-filled church addressing one another, singing thanking, submitting. And all of those shops on the high street that seem to be occupied by businesses and then go under six months later and are up for to let, that's not the greatest need in our town. The greatest need in our town is a Holy Spirit-filled church to the praise and the glory of God. Let us be such a church today because the days are evil. Amen. 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 I want to pray to that end.